0: If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show, although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing The Audiobook Club to your ears. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Season 3 of The Audiobook Club with John York, a podcast celebrating every aspect of audiobook production and the surrounding industry. The audiobook club is sponsored by Amplify Audiobooks by Pro Audio Voices. To hear more about the phenomenal movements Amplify Audiobooks is making for independent authors in the audiobook space, you can find a direct link in the bio of this episode, as well as a short but informative advertisement within this interview. Let's start the show. to season three of the audiobook club in this week's episode we're so lucky to be joined by musician sound engineer producer and studio manager at the tree cave justin mara Justin, it is so lovely to have you join us on the show how are you today
1: i'm well john thank you so much for having me it's great to be here with you Oh,
0: thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Um, as is tradition on this show, I'd love to start by getting to know a little bit more about your background. Um, would you mind telling us a little about your introduction to music and audio storytelling and, and how you found yourself pursuing those paths as a career?
1: Sure. I will I will try and give you the truncated version, uh, because it is not a straight straight line by any means. I've always been interested in music. I I'll often say like Stories and comic books and movies kind of saved my life. I grew up in an an environment where there weren't a lot of kids, other kids around me. And so like content really like created like this wonderful imaginary world. So I've always been fascinated by like comic books and music and storytelling. Um, I picked up the guitar at uh, 14 and immediately started forming horrible bands (laughs) Um, as so many of us do, my dad had become disabled and, uh, a computer store opened up on our street. And so as he was leaving his livelihood, he became interested in building computers. And so that was something we were able to do. And I wound up with probably one of the first 3.1 interface bays that existed at the time from like creative music labs, like sound blaster. Uh, it was like the, the music card uh, that kind of ruled the age. So I had this 3.1 bay on the front of my tower computer that had one quarter inch jack and one XLR plug. Um, and so I was able to like jump into the very early days of home digital audio workstation recording. Uh, I had this terrible DAW, Magic's Music, but it was, an, I could record one track at a time and then add tracks and kind of just build and layer things. And so, like complete happenstance, um, that I that I got into like recording digital recording very early. Uh, I pursued uh, history. I'm a history major. I have a master's degree in American history and a, a, a then a master's level focus in medieval history of uh of the the Christian Church. Which I'm not overly religious, but I I liked that pr- pr- professor and wound up taking all of his courses. I was a high school history teacher for 13 years. Um, yes, it was for a time. Uh, the American education system uh, or the United States education system, I should say, is uh, a little uh, off its tipping point. And I, I often say like education walked away from me. Uh, So in 2018, I was transitioning out of that. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, My partner in life and business, Elise Arsenault, is a professional actor. She had gotten into um, audiobook narration in a few years previously and was really finding a lot of success with that. So I built a recording studio for her to do her work. I built a small control room for me and started dabbling. Michelle Cobb of MMB Media. Um, just through happenstance, uh, we had like lunch or dinner with her and was kind of like, Well, why don't you try editing audiobooks, mastering audiobooks? Anyone can do it. Um, and that's not me, like and anyone can do it. I had a full scholarship to a college uh in New England where I grew up. And I chose to go to a different school where I did not have a full scholarship, specifically because I wanted to work with this group of professors. And on day one, the head of the program gets up in front of all of the history majors and says, if you're content being a B student, you too can be a history major. And I was uh, palpably angry. I had like given up this this scholarship like that would not have cost me anything to go to school to work with this person. And that was their attitude. Um, and that was not me. I graduated um, in the History Honor Society at my bachelor level. I was inducted again in my master's. So like when I get into something, I go all the way down the rabbit hole and I kind of took that same approach to audiobooks. And like, um, there's this b- very famous book on mastering engineering that they use in all of the colleges and all their sound programs. Um, a good friend, Susie Hollander, who's like an amazing um editor, mixer, engineer, um, shared that with me. And I kind of like read that, exhausted that, and then went to you know, YouTube university and just went down the rabbit hole and put in my 10,000 hours. Um, I am i found out like I've always been an engineer and people had convinced me I wasn't like I'm very figure out how the puzzle pieces fit. um, And this like it really spoke to me. I got really excited about it and went all the way down the rabbit hole. And uh, and I'm an audiophile and I really like geek out on finding the sweet spot of the mid range EQ when a narrator's voice just like really pops and comes alive in a way that maybe the raw audio did not capture the information was always there, but we just had to like move the puzzle pieces a little bit. And um, and yeah, it's it's changed. This work has changed my life and, and uh, in wonderful and meaningful ways. And I've met so many people and uh, yeah, I feel really lucky to be able to do this work and work with so many different people and be exposed to and share so many different stories. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. There's so much I wanna ask you um, from that actually. Um, but just your first introduction to audiobooks was it through yeah. Elise were you were you listening to audiobooks prior was it were they on your radar um before that like what what was yeah. like, did you just delve <laughs> right in the deep end with Elise said I'm sure. going to record this audiobook and then you said okay let me figure this out like how did that how did that kind yeah. of come
1: about I actually don't listen to a lot of audiobooks on my own it's really kind of like a professional thing that this is the world I live in like I love to pick up a book and open it And, uh, something I've discovered, uh, in the last five years, like not everybody like is able to visualize the thing that's happening in their, uh, in their mind. Like some people think in colors, some people think in words, some people don't have an inner monologue or or aren't able to visualize anything. Like I am a, I hear my own voice and others voices in my, in my mind, and I can think of something and envision it. So when I open a book and start reading, the world literally comes alive for me. and I really enjoy that experience. Um, and that happens with an audiobook too, but it's it's kind of um, filtered through the voice of the narrator. like as I've had experiences where I've read something and the voice that I've created for the character, I then hear the narrators and I'm like, oh, but that wasn't that's not <laughs> that's not that character's voice. So I I was not someone who, listened to a lot of audiobooks i certainly had listened to them but it you know it doesn't excite me in the same way that um that picking up a book does and so i re- i really did come to it professionally with you know getting elise set up and building our studio the tree cave and like going down that rabbit hole of how do you build a professional recording studio in an environment that wasn't meant to be a recording studio there are just limitations you can't get around um and I made a small little control room for myself because in the back of my mind, I'm I'm a musician. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, well, if I make it just a little bit bigger with these dimensions and shape it this way, well, I can use it for like music production and recording as well. And so it was kind of like the uh, nefarious side quest to like build my own, my own recording studio. And of course, Elise is always recording in there. I never get to use it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it really was kind of, through Elise and you know just I think the nature of the community that really anybody can do this work if they're if they're willing to put in the time and the expertise to do the work well yes anybody can do it Um, you can learn craft you can learn technique Um, that doesn't mean everyone can do the work but every there's there's an, an access point it's an easy access point I think for people to get into Particularly engineering if, if you know that excites you and that's something you want to do if you're willing to put in the hours on task. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So the tree cave. Uh, yes. you mentioned it there. Um, helping narrators and rights holders tell their story, you know, with production and post-production services yeah. and excites. It's like how did the tree cave come about when you started offering services to other people? So did it am I right in saying that it started with just Elise and yourself? And then did it get to a point where you said when you thought we could start offering this within, you know, the, the great audiobook adventure, for example?
1: No, actually, it came out of, this is a very funny story. Our first client arrived and the paint was still drying on the walls of the control room. So like it, Elise is like very business oriented, like she's a very like she will visual, visualize it create a plan and make it happen. And she had scheduled our first client. The, the live room was finished and fine. The control room had no furniture, nothing. I had finished, the paint was still drying on the wall and I was building furniture while Elise was doing the consultation before we got started in the session. So by the time they came downstairs, I had like just finished building my chair. Um. So from like day one, I think the first project we did in the studio was a demo session for someone else um like many other people previously um elise recorded i always say it's five projects but i've elise says it's three it was probably three we did three projects in an upstairs bedroom closet that we had converted into a a, an isolation booth as many people do and that worked it was perfectly fine except that we were we were working in our bedroom and and that didn't feel great um so yeah, it it really did come out of we're going to build this studio. This is going to be my new like thing that I do. And it was it was crazy. In the first 2 years we did a number of demo audiobook demos, we did commercial demos, we uh engineered and I co-directed uh, an odd- Jenny Slate's Little Weirds which wound up wound up being uh, I co-directed that with um name is escaping me at the moment that's (laughs) terrible i'm gonna feel terrible for that later (laughs) it Um, happens (laughs) it does it was i was many years ago um but i was i co-directed that and we did um a number of voiceover for like emmy nominated uh animation we did uh like uh adr that. And I had to figure out how to do all of that and source connect. It was like a whirlwind first two years and right from go, we were in demand and working on things I had never envisioned uh, being able to do. I mean, you really find out what you're made of when you're squeezing yourself in the three and a half inches between the outer wall of like the su- the concrete outer wall of a basement and the inner wall of your studio, snaking HDMI cable to uh, so that the ADR works in the animation session you're about to run. Yeah, uh, it was just really a whirlwind.
0: I've, are you a person who sort of thrives on that, like having to learn things? Like you mentioned, like Source Connect, which is a personal sort of thing where I had to very quickly work out how to use, um,
1: like on the fly. It's, just before. it's terrible, isn't it? And then once you figure it out, you're like, oh, oh, of course, of course, it's this simple. But initially it's it seems like some kind of like dark spell that you just can't like work (laughs) all the component. Like you've got your input and your output and everything's supposed to be working and nothing does. And then, of course, it's that one setting that I still overlook. I have to go down my checklist. Um, do I enjoy learning things on the, do I thrive on it? I am not a prepper in the sense of like, I'm envisioning a, like a doomsday apocalypse, but I do believe in having the tools to like cover the situation that you find yourself in. Um, so I am a naturally risk averse person, I think, but I also get really fulfilled when I find myself in a risky situation and have the thing I need to get out of it. There was a show in the eighties called MacGyver and MacGyver could get out of any situation because he had his Swiss knife and his duct tape. And you'd be amazing what you can get out of with a Swiss knife and some duct tape. And that's like, you know, the equivalent of that in the audio world is like having more XLR cables than you need, or like just, you know, having uh, and uh, kind of like, if you have a reciprocating saw, you can pretty much build anything. Uh, so, like, I'm I believe in like having the tools and the materials to get yourself out of a situation. Um, if you if you've got to jump off the cliff and you don't have a parachute, you better have like some rope and something to like arrest your fall uh, going down the cliff.
0: I think yeah, I agree completely. Um, what was the um, in those early days in those first two years? Let's say. What do you think was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? It may not be something technical, it may just be, you know, a, a switch in lifestyle or, or is there like anything that comes up to you when I, when I ask you that question, the biggest challenge that you had to overcome when you first started, you know, producing audiobooks,
1: engineering sessions, just in this in this mad audiobook world? Yeah. Um, probably two things. Um, probably the biggest one was like so many creatives, I think, artists, um experience imposter syndrome. Um like well they could go anywhere. Why are they working with me? Or you know I'm I I didn't go to school for this, or you know, I the way I'm doing it is it it might not be the right way, but it's working and and oh am I doing a good job? All of those things. And then um and it's kind of become the motto of company in a way, but definitely the studio and definitely one of the mantras of the great audiobook adventure is think scrappy and be brave. Um, and certainly o- only a very short time ago, as like late as 2019, like I would get spec sheets for sessions that would list equipment that I didn't own, that I didn't feel like I needed um, because I had something that worked just as well. Um, Just for example, like we didn't own a TLM 103, which is like a Neumann microphone, large diaphragm condenser, Neumann microphone. It doesn't sound good in a lot of situations because it's so sensitive. It was designed to be in million dollar studio builds, not in home studios. Uh, So we didn't own one and we would lose jobs because of that. Like people would ask if we had this. And I said, no, we have a a Latvian made blue dragonfly, which sounds better in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. And so we would, we you know, that would happen. And then I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm just going to buy that microphone. So I stopped losing losing jobs. So I did. I have still never used it in a session, but we own it. Uh, and so like finding the things that did the job at the price point that made sense or that sounded good in our studio was really difficult. Um, but then it became really empowering.
0: Yeah, fantastic. You mentioned there about, microphones working better in in certain studios and you know there's not a one size fits all you work of course as we've mentioned already with the great audiobook adventure helping narrators um, you know bring together their home studio and you know offering them advice and and the and go-tos around that um, of course it is incredibly uh, personalized customized um, idea you know you can't just watch a, a video on YouTube about it and then expect it to be replicated 100 percent in your own space, Um right. Because you know different uh, different things going on in different spaces. Could you chat a little about the work that you do, um, you
1: know, with with narrators and setting them up? This is I love this is my zone of genius. I feel like <laughs> um, so. Thank you for asking. Yeah, um, and hopefully the microphone that I've chosen today. Of course, right before we started recording, our neighbors started cutting their lawn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, as so many narrators will understand and feel for me. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of, first of all, I think a lot of the industry has been uh, influenced by recordings of a previous time and the recording environment of a previous time. So there was an era where, you know, people just recorded in warehouses and bar rooms with whatever microphone they had. The technology was not great. Certainly a lot of re- Early recordings from the 30s to the 60s. The Fidelity is not great just because they were recording in whatever space they had with whatever equipment they had. They were setting up on the fly. And then in the 1950s with the rise of rock and roll, we got like studios um, that maybe coincided with radio or, you know, we're incorporating, you know, uh, better treatment and shaping and, and thinking about the science of recording sound. Uh, and that really peaked in the 70s. That's where we start to see our million dollar studio builds and like the Abbey Roads, even though they had got start, you know, really built their name in the 60s with the Beatles. It was like really in the 70s with like Pil- Pink Floyd that Abbey Road became Abbey Road um, and you know, uh, K- Capital Studios, their old record RCA in Nashville, like these multi-million dollar recording environments and like Sonic Fidelity really became a thing. And I, I think still that era of recording is shaping how we capture sound. And so the equipment that came out of that age is what a lot of a, a traditionally trained engineers work with when they're learning, right? So they have ac- access to these big mixing consoles and outboard studio gear and like these like U87 microphones, like the original Telefunken U47 or 67s, like these really... Expensive, beautiful pieces of equipment, and that all stacks on each other, right? So, like, if, if you, I often say, if you buy a Ferrari, a Ferrari is only as good as the tires it's sitting on and the brakes that are stopping it. And so, if you skimp later with cheaper tires, you don't have a Ferrari, you have an accident waiting to happen because all of those things play together. And so, a lot of times I'll see a you know a narrator, I'll work with a narrator who has bought a very expensive microphone and they're plugging it straight into a you know, base level consumer interface. There's nothing wrong with that, but you're not getting like the sonic fidelity of the microphone because the preamps in that interface are only so good, right? You can only build a preamplifier so small before you have to compromise versus a unit that is just built to be a preamplifier Something like a, um, like one of the old like focusrite units that's like a box that's like the size of a radio, a large radio. And all <laughs> it's doing is amplifying that signal of the microphone. So like everything stacks on top of each other. Like so, I I work with narrators all the time and try and like flip that script of rather than starting from the equipment, let's start from your studio space. And so is going to stack on top of that. The, thing, the biggest thing that I do now is try and like expel this idea of up-leveling or upgrading. I hear that a lot from now. I like, oh, this is the microphone I have right now, but I want to up-level someday to something like this, or I want to upgrade. If you're not starting with your home studio and building a solid foundation, it doesn't matter what microphone you put in that space. No magic is going to happen. You're limited by the constraints of your home studio and that's that's why they could put those beautiful large diaphragm condenser microphones in those like multi-million dollar spaces because everything was tuned perfectly none of us live in recording studios so like i hear a lot of times like soundproofing you can't soundproof your home unless it was soundproofed when they built it but you can trick the human ear into thinking it is with absorption material and different kinds of atru- acoustic treatments, sound blankets or things like Auralex foam, things like, you know, things that will soak up the spaces and shape the sound in such a way. And microphones and preamplifiers play into that. Things like small diaphragm condenser microphones will perform a lot better in non-traditional studio spaces than large diaphragm condensers or broadcast studio dynamic microphones will perform a lot better than large diaphragm condensers. But everybody, you know, wants that large diaphragm condenser, I think, also, because we've seen them hanging upside down in every recording studio that's ever put out a picture of someone in front of a microphone. Like there's no difference with a side address microphone if it comes in from the side of you or underneath you or on, from above you. As long as the baskets in plane of your mouth, it's going to do its job. So I think the big thing and in, in ch- kind of changing is starting with the home studio. And then the other thing I tell people is microphones are like shoes, right? So some shoes look really good. Some shoes are really comfortable. You would not like wear a, like a wing tipped dress shoe to climb a mountain. You would not wear a like stiletto heel to run a marathon. Um, you would not put a large diaphragm condenser microphone in like a uh, plaster and wood untreated s- studio environment. You're just gonna have reflections all over the place. That's proven to be kind of controversial with people where I've like recommended a microphone to them and they do a session with another engineer, and the engineer's like, oh well, that that's not the sound of an audiobook. I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is th- I don't know what that means. That's not the sound of an audiobook. It's it's kind of counterintuitive to think that like at three to five inches close miking in a well isolated well you know get your absorption material up like at three to five inches a, a dynamic microphone is going to work just as well as a condenser microphone is going to work just as well as a shotgun microphone the difference is those ambient sounds we don't want aren't going to work their way into the microphone
0: do you think one of the issues is kind of like myth busting Is that that certainly like a challenge that you face quite regularly? Um, You know, people have been told that this is the best thing and this is the best thing. And you find that that's like a big challenge that people have to overcome is actually just getting to the root and and sort of, you know, airing out the truth as it was.
1: Yeah, I think myth busting and also FOMO. There's a lot of FOMO um, and I think imposter syndrome. It feels good to be chosen. And when you're not, it stinks. And so Mm -hmm. I think people look like it's very easy to blame the tech. Mm-hmm. I think that happens a lot too when you are audition for something and you know, maybe that audition wasn't great. Um, maybe it wasn't your best day. Um, I, I've personally seen the tech get blamed. Like we just didn't, you know, there's something in your studio. we got to go with someone else. And then I work with that person and very clearly there's nothing going on in the studio. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, a combination of some myth busting, some, some FOMO. And then it's easier to say, oh, that's just not the right microphone than it is to say, like, we liked someone else for this.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when a narrator signs up for a session with you to talk about this, could you give us maybe just a a quick overview of kind of what that session entails? Could you take us through kind of, you know, a a day in the life, as it were?
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've I've got a pretty streamlined process now. Um, So on my website treecave.com there's like a consultation tab you click that and there's an intake form Um, it asks you about your setup it asks for a sound sample Um, I get all that information when you book the appointment and then we do a zoom consultation that's about an hour and we just go through you know whatever is plaguing you whatever it is you want to work on Um, and so I get you know some people take me on a tour of their studio space, which is great. They include like video or lots of pictures, sound samples. And so I have ideas before we even get started of what are the target areas that we want to work on. But then we just have a conversation. Um, and sometimes, you know, we we achieve the goal in like the first 20 minutes, and sometimes we have to do multiple sessions. Um, there it's not it's kind of like with everything else. There's no one size fits all, there's no magic process um i'll i'll say this um a lot of the times someone is using like a quote-unquote mastering stack and it's not performing the way in their space the person who designed it intended or the 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 person who's hired me for this consult has just like purchased something like Isotope um and just turned everything on and it's making their sound different, but not necessarily better. I think the human brain is conditioned to say like different is better. Louder is more good. And that's not always the case. Um, And if we don't have a way to objectively measure that, then louder is more good and different is better. And sometimes different is just different. And sometimes louder is not more good. Uh, And that. That happens a lot where I'm like, okay, let's turn that off. Let's get your raw audio and let's listen to that and start there. That happens a lot.
0: Yeah, I I can imagine. (laughs) When working with narrators, you know, whether it's uh, through a, you know, when you're doing one of your consultation sessions or whether it's, you know, engineering or, you know, producing, working on an audiobook with a narrator, are there any traits that you love for them to have? Like what can we do as narrators that makes your life easier?
1: Coming ready to play and be curious. Um, I think it's I I think it's really fun. As I said, I'm an audiophile. I really enjoy connecting with people and and like just tweaking that sound until it's like as great in the space it can be. If you've hired me in your mind, something's not right. We're going to figure out what that is together and then be open to the solution, whatever that may be. And it might not be an elegant solution not might be it might not be an easily attainable solution it might not be the solution that you hoped but just being open to that um so come ready to play be curious and be open i think that's pretty fair pretty fair to ask <laughs> um
0: audiobook demos are often a challenging thing to get right uh and there is so much information for narrators that it can seem like you know to confuse folks rather than uh you know do anything uh, of good are there any sort of quick tips that you can share in regards to a
1: narrator creating a demo or a series of demos for their narration demos can be tricky um if you're going to create your own demos hire a post-production engineer to master them uh i don't Think it makes sense for any narrator who doesn't have the time or interest to learn how to use those those plug-in tools, compressors, limiters, EQ, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the the desire to really learn how to use those those plugins, just turning on a default stock plugin is not going to work the majority of the time. So if you really want your demos to stand out, hire an engineer. If you really if you really want to go the extra step, do a directed session um, because that director is going to push you in ways that you wouldn't push yourself Um, just not that you can't push yourself, but we're going to push you in different directions than you would think we're going just just because it's a different point of view. Um, So hire engineers if you're producing them yourself, go for the directed session. I personally don't think more is always better. Um, I I will have people come back to me after we've done like an, in, a, in a, in a tree cave demo package, you're going to get three samples in the end. Sometimes people will say like, Oh, I would, I want to have five. So I'm going to record two more on my own and then send them to you to master afterwards. I, you know, I think most people make a decision in the first 30 seconds of, sample that's been my experience the casting directors that I talked to the other engineers that I talked to ten like in the first 30 seconds they've decided if you're it Um, so my position is whatever you're going to read whatever you're going to do make sure that it's something that you really love you're really practiced and that you can hit out of the park because like if you've got seven samples on your website I might listen to the first two So like lead off with your with the thing you're going to hit a home run on Um, because like maybe the book that I'm looking for is a mystery and maybe your mystery samples three deep. But if your first sample is like a sci-fi adventure and you hit it out of the park, if you can read a sci-fi adventure well, you can probably deliver a, a thriller well. So I think it's less important to have like the specific sample of the genre than it is to like have every genre listed, you know, I, I said the same thing twice. I think it's less important to have every genre that you could potentially want to read than it is to have samples that really showcase you really well. Um, and if you're recording your samples from your home studio space, say that on your, like let us you know, let people know immediately that this was recorded in your studio and then they were mastered. Like, just put a note there in the description. I think that's important. You know, if you audition for something or if I'm listening to your sample in a casting possession, the next thing that you're going to get asked for is a raw raw sample of your home studio. If I know this was recorded from your home studio and mastered, and that's what your home studio sounds like after it's been mastered, then I, I shouldn't need a raw studio sample. I I think it's less important to have like, five to seven to ten samples listed than it is to have like three really good ones that are just like one after the other home runs, all-star performances and lots of people disagree with me. In fact Elise disagrees with me on that Um, and I think that's the difference of being like post-production back-end and like being and Elise is also a director but I think in her mind she's an actor first so I, I get that 100%. Um, I get as an actor, you really want to like showcase all the things you can <laughs> do. And it's like, just, you know, if you're a great performer, then you're going to perform wonderfully, no matter what you're reading. Yeah, I get that.
0: I get that. So what this package, uh, at the tree cave, the demo package, what so you mentioned that there's there's three demos that come out of that. So what mm. does that session look like? If one was to book, um, book that package, what what would what would that entail?
1: so uh when... i'm asking for myself now yeah
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay John. so it, like you hire us to do the session um the first thing that you're going to do is um you'll again it's an intake form we ask for a sample from your home studio just to see first and foremost if we can work with the audio that's coming out of your home studio space because um, that's the end of the process for some people they send in the sample I can't, I can't give you what you want based on what I'm hearing. You've got some home studio to work and we, you know, we send back demo session, follow up our sound sample, follow up. Hey, we're not able to offer you a date just yet. Our engineer listen. it could be me. It could be somebody else, but our engineer heard this. When you've corrected it, send us a number sample. We'd love to work with you or sound sample approved. Click here to schedule your link. We have a number of dates available or not, depending on the time of year. You want to move forward with that? You click there. Um, all of the administrative stuff da- gets uh, uh, taken care of, and uh, then you do a seventy-five minute pre-session with a director. Sometimes Elise sometimes some me, sometimes somebody else, and we kind of like have you. We talk for a little bit under try and understand what your goals are. It's a consultation. Um, we choose the samples that seem to showcase you the best, then give you a couple of, uh, things to work on, tweak some things. We might say, "Mm, this is not, you can do this sample. We don't think it's going to showcase you in the way that you want it to showcase you. Do you have another one? If not, we help you choose another one. And then some time passes. Hopefully, you keep working on it, keep practicing, show up on the day. We do a three-hour session where we record these sam- these samples. We do multiple takes. We have uh, talent listen back to the samples we like. If we really like something. We might record some pickups, do some different reads of a few things. We might still do another, like just for fun or a safety take. Um, we usually get like between two and four, two and five takes of a sample, export that and then I go to work on the back end cutting and pasting and dragging and and tightening and spacing uh, it's an open roll directed session even though we encourage all of our clients and students in the great audiobook adventure to learn and master punch and roll our directed session is open roll And so then I just take it all in the back end and and that's where the like the fun for re- me really starts of like creating, It happened on the day, but it didn't happen the way you're going to hear on the back end Um, and really just taking that experience and and crafting it to just give you the best possible to a minute and a half to two and a half minutes of audio this casting director has ever heard. And it's it's really fun. It's really creative. Um. We laugh. We have a great time. Sometimes there's crying involved because like there's a break breakthrough. Like we really we really push like happy tears. Happy tears, not breakdown tears, but like it's <laughs> uh occasionally it happens. Like you really push someone, they connect to something in a way they've never connected before. And that's real. It's vulnerable. And um and then yeah, on the back end you get these samples. We send you a link from our server. Um and yeah, and you're off and running.
0: Yeah. That's it. Well, I'm sold. Where do we, where do we sign up? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, you can go to treecave.com. Uh, there's uh, under services, there's audio audiobook demo and all the information is right there. You can click the link to uh, submit that initial approval. If your home studio is not there, you can set up a consultation and we can work it from there. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how many dates we have uh, available for the rest of the year, but there are some.
0: Okay, I'll make sure to post that link uh, in the description of this show. Uh, awesome. So folks can check that out. Um, so when we're not consulting, we're not, you know, in the booth. We're not mastering and editing and engineering and directing and all of that sort of thing. What do you get up to on your time off? What do you? What can we often find you up to when uh, oh, we're not? Wow. Awake?
1: Um Right now, I'm obsessed with. Um, I'm obsessed with. Uh, your listeners can't see it, but this is a uh, oh, nice Polaroid SX70. Uh, we recently took a trip across the country uh, and we were gone for a month and I bought 10 packs of they're making it again, which is amazing. SX 70 Polaroid film. So I'm really geeking out on like analog photography. Nice. Um, I'm a musician for the last two years. I've been recording to two inch tape uh, all in analog with my high school bandmates, our band Su- survivors of the Kraken. Uh, We just finished our first full-length album of 10 songs. Uh, That's being mastered by Carl Saff right now at Saff Mastering. So we're going to get that back soon and hopefully playing music, writing new music, maybe a small tour, fingers crossed. Uh, uh, Reading comic books, video games. I'm really lucky. I, I say this all the time. I have an objectively good life. Uh, or I, I, I'm able to do all of the things that fulfill me creatively. Um, and, and like do this work that, that sustains that lifestyle. Uh, (laughs) and I, I am fortunate to have like a really healthy work, personal life balance. Like I've got clear work hours and I'm able to turn off my brain. A lot of creatives like, or a lot of like people aren't able to do that. So I've got, I've got my guitars, I've got my music, I got my comic books, uh, yeah just just living an objectively good life
0: that sounds so amazing i was gonna actually ask you you mentioned uh your work-life balance there and having strict hours like, are you a person of like a strict routine like is that something that you really had to work in there is that, like a certain time comes that's that's me done with that and onto onto other things
1: interesting question i'm not actually i don't i don't like very rigid schedules but I do have, I am someone who maintains strong boundaries. So when I'm done with my work, I am only I'm like, I'm, we're not talking about work. And that can be very difficult when you're like, when your spouse is also your business partner and you live and work in the same space. <laughs> it can, it's not easy, but like, uh, Hey, it's, uh, so we have a rule like after six o'clock, if like Elise is really like gung-ho in a project, like her work hours are not my work hours, but like after six o'clock, like I'll just point at my watch like six o'clock. Don't (laughs) ask me this question right now. Because like it's, I think one of the things that's happened in the 21st century with the rise of like just pocket technology, digital pocket technology, connective technology, not even social media, but just having access to like a greater world outside of you is like, it's so hard to just be bored and boredom is essential for creativity like that's where like the human imagination came from is it's like we lacked stimulation and we looked to the things around us to to um, cre- imagine worlds because the worlds we were living in were not interesting to us in the moment and there are so many like interesting stimuli around us now at all like all times of the day it's so hard so i don't do like rigid Six o'clock is this, seven o'clock is that, but I have I do have like strong boundaries around this is when I do the work for other people. This is when I allow myself to, like some people call it self-care. Some people call it like their artist time. Like this is the time for me. And so like my my lunch break, my start work hours and my end work hours are like very defined, even if they don't happen at the same time every day. I think that's I think that's very important if if you're a creative having those strong boundaries to say like I'm just going to give my brain time to do nothing and see what happens.
0: Absolutely, I think that's so important. I think it's so important. Where's the um? Where's the best place for our listeners to keep up with everything that you're doing?
1: Um, I'm on Instagram at Tree Cave Studio. Um, our band is at sotk band is that correct? <laughs> I should know <laughs> I should know my own band handle on Instagram but I don't uh at, at Tree Cave studio um and yes at sotk band those are both on Instagram and then uh treecave.com are the best places to keep up with me I don't spend a lot of time on social media um just for for like positive mental health reasons. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's where people can follow me.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. I'm so with you there. I'm cutting down myself. I'm, uh, I just have to, just have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to end the show by simply asking if you have any upcoming projects, you've already mentioned the album and a possible tour and stuff. That's really exciting, but any upcoming projects, anything at all that you're excited about, um, that perhaps we can look forward to as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm working on an audio book right now. Uh, it's written and narrated by Don McGwirely, called "The Infernal Promise." Um, it's if, if it's not his life work, it feels like his life work to me. Listening to it, it's this wonderful, like fantasy world um, through the the lens of uh, it's you know kind of like a uh, an alternate Middle Earth um, influenced uh, with East Asia. And it's, it's just really, it's a new take on a familiar thing that I, that I love. And so it's really interesting to work on. It's, it's, it's hard work, but I'm really enjoying listening to it while I'm working. And it's, it's, it's proving a hard time, I think, because I'm, I get caught up just listening and I'm like, oh, I needed to make an edit there. So it's taking me a long time uh, to work on, but I, it's called the infernal promise and it should, it should be out. Probably by the time this comes out, maybe a little after, maybe in like late October, it should be out. I'm not sure when this will drop. Yeah, The Infernal Promise. I'm really enjoying working on that. One thing that we didn't talk about that I would just um, maybe share with you, hashtag credit your engineer. Engineers tend to be not credited in the liner notes of audiobooks for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost anybody anything, uh, but often I think we're kind of like the invisible part of the the process. And so like if you're working on independent exchanges, if you're like the if you're the project manager as well as the narrator, like please after the written by, read by or narrated by um include something, you know, to the effect of edited by or post production by and and mm-hmm. just credit your engineer. Um yeah. because our whole job is to elevate the project and and make it sound as good as possible, but often we, I think engineers wind up being invisible. Uh, I, I, and so yeah. I've been sharing that with as many people as I can lately. I, and, I couldn't
0: uh, agree more. I couldn't agree more. I know that some um, some uh, places in the UK have started doing it, um, following suit from radio, I suppose. Um, yeah. But it doesn't seem to have been... So, So, for instance, my, my sister's a sound engineer. She edits all of my stuff. Um, and, you know, she's been pitching this for for ages and as as she rightly should um wanting that credit but the we've had it a few times when we're working on uk projects but about 80 percent of my work is from the us right and it's of course no credit there um i don't get it yeah i neither do i because as you say it costs it costs nothing
1: yeah it's not like we're getting a point on the record i don't i don't understand i don't get it yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the time it's because they don't know who's going to wind up doing the post production, but you know, by the time you've finished recording the book, I I think ninety percent of the time we know who the the post pro is going to be. It could yeah. just get added in later. But uh, I yeah. I empathize one hundred percent with your sibling, um, <laughs> and yeah, like it costs nothing to credit the engineer. So let's mm. let's start doing it, especially yeah. as like. I got asked recently, like, am I afraid of AI? There have been like online platforms for mastering for over a decade, and so it's like if you value working with humans, credit the humans, and if you don't value working with humans, then I'm not going to change your opinion. Mm -hmm. But if if we're hiring the human, like, just say that person's name. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's just acknowledging their existence at that point.
0: Yeah. I I couldn't agree more.
1: Well, uh, that just about
0: brings us to a close for this episode of the Audiobook Club. All of the links to Justin's social media website, uh, Tree Cave, uh, will be linked in the show notes. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, another thank you to you, Justin, for joining us. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: Frustrated by the royalty rates for your audiobook? Annoyed that when the digital distributors say 70% royalties, they actually mean 70% of 50% or 80% of 70%, neither of which is an actual 70%. Wishing there was a way to cut out the middleman? Yet, you want your audiobook listeners to have a smooth and positive experience and a direct download sale from your website won't deliver that. We at Pro Audio Voices hear you. Out of our commitment to our author clients, we've created Amplify, a program that provides an actual 65% of the sales price that you set, that gives you access to your customers' names and emails so you can reconnect with them and keeps you in the driver's seat check it out at ProAudioVoices.com. You'll find Amplify in the marketing menu. Thank
0: you so much for listening to this episode of The Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening.